Welcome to season two of the Pines and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. This show understands that there is quite a bit of diversity amongst the body of Christ. So we operate according to the motto that certain things are fixed, like the essentials of faith, and the best beer is served on tap, while everything else is just a matter of perspective. What's going on, beer lovers? What up? I hope you are all doing well. Um, for those of you on YouTube, apologize. We've had some technical difficulties today. I, my dumb self, deleted an entire week worth of content on accident, trying to fix a technical difficulty. Didn't even think about it. Deleted all the content. It's been a nightmare of recording ever since. So, um, we're just... We're, we're here. We're doing it. There's just no video uh, this week on this podcast, so... And, and that's going to be okay. It um, will be fine. The perfectionist in me kind of hates it, but we're we're making it through. So we both have beers from the same brewery today, though. Um, one that... I had a beer from them on the episode that we did last week, which was supposed to be this episode, um, no. which it's okay. Rip. It happens. It happens. Um, but we both have beers from them today. Um, it is Holiday Brewing Company. And the thing that I think I love about Holiday um, is I found out that it's female owned. Right. I the, remember the this. founder yeah. of Holiday, her name is Karen Hertz. And, um, she, she founded Holiday, and the beer that I had last week was it was a a, a golden ale, um, <coughs> if I remember like correctly, and it was named after her grandfather. I don't remember. Um, really cool brewing company, but Cullen has one called the Fat Randy's. Yes, I do. So it's called the Fat Fat Randy's IPA. It's from Holiday Brewing Company, which is in Golden, Colorado, which I don't actually know where that is in Colorado. I don't either. Um, but this is what it says. Hungry for adventure and thirsty for a world-class American IPA, Fat Randy journeyed to the land where the buffalo roam. He pairs his aromatic, easy-drinking IPA with close friends and the great outdoors. A toast to Fat Randy, the man, the myth, the legend. Um, <laughs> it's really, really clever marketing there, doing it around yeah. uh, the Fat Randy suggestion. But... Um, if you don't know, if this is your first episode... Um, I love, like, love, 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 love IPAs. His heart is full of IPA. Can't get enough. Yeah. There's not enough. This is what it says online about this beer. It's 65 IBUs, which the can doesn't say, or if it does, it's covered up by a sticker. Um, for aromatics, strong forward notes of citrus, melon, and flora. Background hints of malty sweetness. Appearance is a medium gold with a dry, hop-induced haziness. 
Flavor is complex floral and citrus hop notes with a smooth malty finish. Mouthfeel is full body with a smooth finish. Grain bill is a combination of roasts of millet malt and buckwheat malt. And the hop bill, always my favorite bill in any IPA. A blend of hops including Bravo, Cascade, and Centennial. If you didn't know, Cascade and Centennial are two of my favorite hop strains. So there we go. That is an interesting hop bill. Um, uh, the Bravo in it is what makes that's it. That's so interesting. Centennial, that's pretty. They the go Bravo seems interesting. I'm going to see how that uh, plays out for you. It's going to have some earthiness to it. Yeah. So, <laughs> excuse me. Um, I have the Big Henry Hazy IPA. Um, this is what it says on the can. Big Henry is the trophy fish that always that is, that's always just out of reach. This beer is juicy and balanced with waves of tropical notes and citrus. A gluten-free beer you never thought you'd land. Don't let this one get away. Dang. That's <laughs> really, clever. Really well written. Um, it's it's 6.3% ABV, 35 IBUs. Uh, the aroma is going to be tropical fruits, melon, pine, and citrus. Typical things in an IPA. Um, and then the grain bill is toasted millet malt and buckwheat malt, whereas the hop bill is a blend of mosaic and cashmere. Ooh. I am very excited about this. I think that that's how they're going to get the fruity juiciness. And I hope it's as fruity and juicy as the Belching Beaver IPA, the Deftones oh, Belching yeah, yeah, Beaver yeah. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's kind of what I'm looking for. Mm, sounds good. We ready? Yep. Cheers, buddy. Cheers. Oh. Oh, jeez. Yep. I, uh, I s- some beer spit out of the can onto, uh, Ben and Randy's book. Uh, mine hit the floor. Ooh. Yeah, this... Yep. Mine smells juicy. Mm-hmm. Not as juicy on the palate as I was hoping for. Um, dang. It is very good, though. That is very good. Yeah, so for perspective, um, I was hanging out with an old friend yesterday at St. Arnold's Brewing. Which, if you didn't know, that's a local Houston brew we love um, that I love. And uh, we were there from about 1230 till about 430. And so I had several beers. Um, and when you're there, you know, you've got the best beers always served on tap. So, you know, you, you drink beer on tap and they have everything on tap because um, it's the brewery. And so um, I had a uh, I had a couple of double downs yesterday, which mm, if you didn't know, love that IPA double down is a fantastic IPA. I did not know this until I was at the brewery. Um, did you know that the double down is just a double bill of the juicy? No way. That's all it is. Just like the double art car is just a double bill of the art car. 
Oh. The double down is just a double down bill of the juicy. You would never know that, though. Nope. That's exactly what it is, though. Anyways, this beer. This beer. I say all that. I also drank um, an art car and a juicy Mm. yesterday. Uh, So I ran the gambit of like readily available IPAs from St. Arnold's yesterday. Uh, So my mind is astutely aware on the differences available in those. And I can't put this anywhere near one because those Bravo hops and that like earthy Mm. element that's coming out of it. um, So radically different. Yeah, I quite I quite enjoy it. Um, I'm I'm thinking like seven eight. Like that's yeah. a really good beer. Yeah, I, I I'm glad you enjoy it. I really enjoyed the one that I had last week too. So I have really high hopes because I really enjoy this as well. Um, so for the big Henry, it it it's definitely a hazy. You know, it, it's definitely that juicy kind of hoppy thing going on here. Yeah. But the first thing that hits me is the mosaic. Okay. Um, so it's kind of citrusy. Yeah, mosaic the, is a, a good IPA hop. Yeah. yeah, it's very citrusy, very pine forward up front. Oh, interesting. Um, or at least to my palate, it's very pine forward up front. Mm-hmm. Um, but then after you swallow and kind of on the exhale is where you get the juiciness. Mm-hmm. Um, so not as juicy as I like my hazies to be just after, after having the Deftones, it tasted like flipping juicy fruit. Right. <laughs> um, th- that is hard for me to let go of, but for out as hazies go, I- I'm sitting seven, six. Wow. Um, it wow. is fantastic. Um, this is a fantastic beer. Um, so, Holidayly Brewing, Mrs. Kurtz, Hertz, um, fan chat, fantastic job. Yeah, well done. Um, love this beer. All right, let's talk some theology. Ten minutes into this podcast. Yeah. Uh, because of that, I will go 25 minutes and no longer, just because I want to give you more theology than I give you beer. Um we're starting a conversation about Jesus. Um, originally, I wasn't going to make it three episodes long. Now I probably will because I don't want to do it an injustice, but I'm still quite frustrated myself for deleting this episode earlier tonight when we'd already recorded it last week. Cullen, stop beating. It's fine. It happens, buddy. <laughs> I'm quite very frustrated myself for that. Anyways, so... We'll probably end up doing this across several episodes because I don't want to rush this conversation because we are starting a conversation about Jesus. And Ben and Randy introduce um, the Jesus section or the Jesus chapter um, talking about Cyril of Alexandria. If you didn't know, Cyril's born in the 4th century in Alexandria in Egypt. Um. And he's quite influential to the Jesus conversation and the way in which um, things happen for the development of Christology and the beliefs and doctrines around Jesus. Right. But 
The main reason for that is simply because he's the one that ends up going to battle against the guy named Nestorius. What this story is telling you is that Cyril becomes an influential character in the patristic father or the patristic writings, the church fathers, um, for the whole complete human being Jesus mm-hmm. being united in nature of man and God that mm-hmm. you can't somehow separate those right God Jesus the man did not die on the cross and mm-hmm. Jesus the God do all the miracles as he walked around no Jesus the human the God man both man and God did all of those things mm-hmm. Nestorius wanted to separate them and he's condemned as a heretic I do remember in the last time we recorded this um, feeling very good about me asking why. Why what? Why was that? Why was he condemned a heretic because of that? Mm. It's great. It's a great question. Well, and this is not talked about enough. Cyril is in Alexandria. Mm-hmm. Cyril is one of the guys that Ben Blackwell, my master's thesis supervisor, which I did with him on deification in Clement of Alexandria, mm-hmm. about 150 years before Cyril. Ben himself, the author of this book, did his PhD work on reception of history of Paul, reception history of Paul, in Irenaeus of Lyons mm-hmm. and Cyril of Alexandria right. around deification. Right. My suspicion, you, if, if, those, if those natures are separated, you never get deification. Mm, interesting. You can't have it. His soteriology didn't work if those natures can be separated. Interesting. The fact that God becomes man so that man might become God is the entire thing. Hmm. If those are somehow disconnected and and a person can jump between them, we don't have the wholeness that we need for divine likeness in the pursuit of deification. His soteriology went out the window if Nestorius is right. Okay. That's just the, I mean, that's just the situation that we find ourselves in. Yeah. Um, His soteriology didn't exist anymore if the natures were somehow separated. That's interesting. Um, Because the last time we recorded this episode and I asked that question, you said, because if the natures of God and man within Jesus become separated, he no longer becomes the exemplar for how we are supposed to live. Oh, that is also true. Yeah. Yeah, that is also That's true. That's interesting that you gave two different perspectives. They are both very true. They, I, I think so. Yeah. I was just sitting here listening like, that's not what you said last time. Interesting. But that is, yeah. Yeah, both of those are very true. So I will say, and maybe it's because I'm frustrated at myself for deleting this piece of content last week um, or earlier tonight, and I'm just feeling contrarian. 
And so <laughs> that's why I'm giving you that perspective today where I was in a different state of mind last last I, week. I, I think that that's um, possibly it, but it, I mean, it doesn't matter. We, we still get two perspectives here that are both very valid. Yeah, they are both very true. G, G, it is important that the natures are joined together because if Jesus is somehow still 100% God and at times no humanity really within him except mm. the body that's housing him, he doesn't become an exemplar that we can believe him. Right. When he says, greater things than these will right. you do after me. Right. And, and um, that's the whole, like, Imago Dei piece and, like, being correct. created in the image of God. You have divinity within you as well. Correct. Therefore, you should be able to do the things that Jesus did in greater things. Um, and if those two things are separate within Jesus, that no longer becomes true for us. Correct. Yes. And in the same way, I do think Cyril had some very personal reasons that Nestorius and this idea needed to be squashed because his soteriology depends on it. Right. That Now, I also believe that Nestorius is coming from like a pretty honest place. I don't think mm. he's trying to do anything heinous. What he's trying to do is he's trying to protect God. Yeah. God can't die. For yeah. Nestorius, that's a problem. That that means God can is, do the thing that he is against. Which which you, he doesn't right. win the story. Which is a very honest kind of question to ask. Um, how can a perfect God die? Oh yeah. Right? Like therefore he is either imperfect or there's something else at play here that we're not understanding. Very, very much so. So Nestorius is asking this question and he's like, Hey, you know, I'm I just I don't I'm not sure how this can happen. Like, God right. can't die. For for me, the fact that God does die right. is the most beautiful piece of the darn story. Right. But for Nestorius, he's trying to protect this supreme creator being that offers life. Right. Well, how can something that offers life die? Right. It it be, it, it, it is a challenging question. Um, it, it is. It, it is a very challenging question. I think... Well, it also means that God... Is not impassable. Right. Meaning exactly. Impass impassibility is the fact that God God cannot change and or suffer. Immutability, right. impassibility. Um, these are the conversations we're having here. Ancient people believed that God was both immutable and impassable. Mm -hmm. That God could not change and nor could God suffer. Right. Um and so therefore a God of life cannot change and experience death. A God who is present and provider and all of these things cannot suffer on the cross as Jesus did. Right. So he's just trying to find some way to protect, protect his theological structure from this problem. And I really like. I do think it like it's a problem he needed to solve. Yeah, he just solved it in a way that there were people that were more powerful than him that said, "No, this is not how we're going to do it." Right. Um, I say it all the time that Nicaea is the only council of the church that I really work from. Mm -hmm. Um. Chalcedon, I think it's helpful, which is the one we're leading into. That's the council that kind of happens that, or that a lot of this happens around and off of. I think it's a helpful right. council 
I think it should be consulted. Sure. But I don't hold it as binding on Christian tradition the way that I do Nicaea. Right. Like Nicaea is the one that we're working from. Everything else is just a piece of the puzzle we're trying to put together. Right. Go listen to the first two series on this podcast, and you'll learn more about that if you don't know. <laughs> uh, the first two. Yeah, so we... Oh, I'm sorry, one, the first series we just went through... The Nicaean, Nicaean Creed. We went through Nicaean and the Apostles. Uh, yes, yes. The um, Apostles is actually earlier, but yes. Right, it was the Apostles, the Apostles Creed first, and then we went through the Nicene Creed. Mm. Um, go listen to those. I do think they are good. Um, so let's talk about Messianic expectations. Okay, um, get us started. Get get us started. So there's lots... Oh, oh, yeah. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so there's lots of um, things that we see in the Old Testament that seem like prophecies or future expectations of the coming Messiah mm -hmm. um, that we now know of as Jesus on this side. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. You want me to keep going? Yes. Um, so, I, I don't think that we can have this conversation um, with talking without talking about David. Okay, yes. Um, so, messianic expectations come from the Davidic covenant. Uh, this is in 2 Samuel 7, um, where this all kind of gets started. Um, David actually goes to God and says, Hey, I want to honor you. Uh, so I'm going to build you a house to live in. You're currently living in this tabernacle, this tent. Mm -hmm. And so as you're out living in this tent, I want to build you a house, a, a like strong structure that you can live in forever. And God's response, I love. Hain is like David, the way that I ex explain him, the epithet that I give him is David the deplorable. <laughs> he, he's a despicable human being. He's not a great dude. He's a despicable human he's being. He's not a great Scum dude. of the earth. His son rapes his daughter. He does nothing. He rapes a woman and kills her husband. The, the result of it is an aborted child that's his heir. Oh, like, and, and let's also not forget that the payment for one of his wives was like how many foreskins? Oh, um, I don't remember. It was so many. <laughs> I don't remember. So like he just just uh, not a good dude. Yeah, David the deplorable. But he somehow called a man after God's own heart, which that's another thing. But anyways, um David the deplorable. God's response to David the deplorable isn't, "Hey dude, you're a despicable human being." Mm. Like, no, you can't build my house. No, God's response to David is, hey, David, actually, that's a great sentiment, uh, and I appreciate that. Let's let Solomon do that, your son, yeah. um, because you have too much blood on your hands. Man, I could preach right now. I'm not going to because that's not the point of this. Heebie-jeebies. So he says, I'm going to build you a house. He says, you have too much blood on your hands. But because I appreciate the sentiment, I'm going to make you a house. Right. Um, 
and I'm going to make your kingdom never end. Right. And I remember having a conversation. Never mind. Man, my mind is all over the place. It must be because it's 1015 at night. And anyways, this idea ends up finding its fulfillment that the ultimate king, the king, messianic king that that Israel was waiting for was found in Jesus. And that's why I tell people all the time, don't just skip Matthew chapter one. Right. I, correct me if I'm wrong. You've heard me preach probably what? Hundreds of times at this point? Yeah. Is not my Matthew 1 sermon one of your favorites? The one where I tell, um, work through the genealogy of Jesus and tell the story of the five women? That might, uh, mm. so it's really hard because lots of what you did with your hydrate series, I love. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it turned into a tattoo. So yeah, yeah. I get that. But. The outside of that, because that might go in the greatest hits. Um, outside of that, yeah, your Matthew one is really good. Yeah, don't don't skip that. It's beautiful stuff there. But all of that is to show you that genealogy is broken up into three parts of fourteen. Yeah, and one of those parts is David. Right. The second, the middle part is David. The first part goes back to Abraham. Second part's David. Third part is post-exilic from right. the deportation on, um, marking the three main movements of Israel's history. Right. Abraham, the 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 patriarchy, mm -hmm. the colonization with David and the conquering, and then the rebuilding after the exile with Ezra and Nehemiah. Right. Those are the three main movements. So, yes, absolutely. If you're going to talk about messianic expectations and Christology from behind, looking back at what the Old Testament is saying about the coming Messiah, you absolutely must talk about Davidic kingdom and lineage. The other thing you must talk about is the Isaiah prophecies. Mm. Those sections from chapter 40 to 66, I think it is, uh, and specifically 51 through 58, um, yeah, absolutely, very much so talking about a king that nobody was looking for. Right. Not a soul. The Isaiah literature, Isaiah 53 is kind of where that finds its fulfillment um, in the suffering servant right there. Um, and then in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus first gets up to preach in the synagogue, he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. Yeah. And he opens it. And where does he choose to read from? Chapter 61. Mm -hmm. A very folk, like a very highlight moment in the book of Isaiah. So, yeah, absolutely. Messianic expectations are very much so there. Um, but we also have the, the what Ben and Randy call the Christology from below. Right. They, they called Old Testament Messianic Expectations Christology from behind, looking mm. back. They call New Testament Messianic ex Fulfillment Christology from below. So think about your theology from above and theology from below. Bring this out. Uh, for time's sake, since I told you I was going to do 25 minutes, and now I feel pretty amped, um, and we're already at 28, I'm going to bring us in a little bit. But all of this can be summarized in an understanding of the kingdom of God. Mm. Now, 
if you go back to, I think it's the third series we ever did on this podcast, I do seven weeks with Ben Blackwell, the author of this book, on the kingdom of God. Yep. Um, and it's fantastic. It, it, it's, it's really good. It's a great series. He does a lot of the Bible stuff. I mean, I've got some contributions in there, but... Lord knows. Ben he's, does he's, a lot of he's work. He's far there. more there. And then we get into some later ones where I lead some conversations about um, modern expressions of the kingdom of God and the social gospel and some of the ways that plays out. So uh, go check those out. They are good and they cover a they cover every broad category of how you could think or talk about the kingdom of God from a thirty thousand foot view. Now, they before we do this, and then we'll wrap this up right here. They have a blurb here about Jesus' humanity in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. We didn't really talk about this last time that we recorded this, and I'm glad we're doing it now. Um, just like in everything, I tell people, you know, there's going to be a spectrum, and sure. you're going to find yourself somewhere on a spectrum here. There's a spectrum of how human or how divine you make Jesus. Mm. For instance, if I tell you, hey, Jesus was tempted in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and he never succumbed to any temptation, if your response is, yeah, but he's Jesus, you've made him more divine than you made him human. Yeah. Um, and honestly, probably for fear of making him human. But actually, the Gospels are quite good at showing us that he's absolutely human um, when he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yep. The Gospels tell us that he sweats blood. Yeah, which... If you yeah. know what that is biologically, your capillaries, the things that connect your veins together, have busted, and your body is literally oozing blood out of your skin pores. You are sweating blood, which for the average person, um, they would die in about eight minutes. Yeah. It's important to the story because even in a non-advanced society, they understood that life came with blood, that if you took blood from something, life went with it. Um, And so the fact that Jesus is dripping blood is important to the story, especially when Paul says that it's only death only comes through sin. So the fact that Jesus is not dying means that he's without sin. He did not succumb to the temptation. So it's beautiful storytelling, but that's a very human experience that's happening to him biologically. Um, The fact that Jesus weeps for the death of his friend Lazarus, a very human experience, Jesus in that moment. Um, This is what their blurb says. Jesus' humanity in the Gospels. According to Luke Timothy Johnson, great scholar, the Gospel writers interpret Jesus' sayings and deeds from the perspective of a deeper understanding of him, given by the experience of the resurrection and the rereading of Scripture in light of his death and resurrection. What remains remarkable in view of this is, is how vividly human Jesus remains in their respective portraits of him. A man totally at home in the Judaism of first century Palestine with the words and gestures that fit that time and place. 
The Gospels should stun us most, not because they see Jesus as somehow divine, but that they say that they so steadily and convincingly portray him as also utterly human. I think the church has done an injustice to ourselves and our own narrative by ignoring the humanity of Jesus. Isn't that absolutely true? The humanity of Jesus is what makes Jesus approachable. Mm -hmm. Why did we need God to come down and be like us? Why did we need Emmanuel? Because God already felt unattainable. It's the humanity of Jesus that makes him within reach. It's the humanity of Jesus that makes it possible for me to think about God being in my passenger seat. Yeah. It's the humanity of Jesus that makes any of it freaking matter. Thanks for listening to the Pints and Perspectives podcast hosted by Wellhouse Church. Be sure to give us a rating and a review if you enjoyed the episode. It's free and it helps us immensely. Also, feel free to check out our other podcasts.